Hey there! Are you tired of waiting for the next episode of It's Probably Not Aliens? Well, we've got some good news for you. On Nebula, our streaming service, you can get access to all our episodes a week early. That's right, you'll never have to wait again to hear Scott and I debunk the latest ancient astronaut theory or get a movie fact wrong. But that's not all. Nebula is home to dozens of content creators we know you like, so you can find all your favorites in one place. Plus, we post content on there that you won't find anywhere else. And the best part? By signing up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash probablynotaliens, you're directly supporting the show and both of us. So don't wait any longer. Join Nebula today and listen to the next episode right after this one. Hey everyone, Scott here. Before we get started, we recorded this episode with a very special guest who I'm very excited about, but we definitely got some audio settings wrong during the recording, so the audio is not quite the caliber of quality that the rest of the episodes are. It's still very listenable. Uh, Our guest for this episode was very gracious with his time. We still wanted to throw this out there. It was a fantastic conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Just know that this is the only episode that we've recorded so far that has slightly lower audio quality. The rest are all good. We've made measures in the future to make sure that this won't happen again. Just wanted to let you know, make you aware that we are aware. Hope you enjoy the conversation anyway. Well, I do have to say, I guess the one way to talk about it is that um, the longer that we do, it's probably not aliens. Yeah. And this has nothing to do with COVID, of course. Sure. The more my hair is turning me into Giorgio Sukalos. I have noticed that. <laughs> alien hair guy. There's a receding hairline going on. So this is sort of like a farewell tour for having <laughs> hair. Um, so, yeah, it... It makes sure you get at least one screen capture where you're like, you're doing the ancient alien guy. Aliens. Aliens. Yeah. But not aliens. <laughs> but not, but it's probably not aliens. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Actually, a uh, good way, to, good like uh, story to start this is that in the Bible that my wife mm. lent me so that I could do this. Uh, oh, fucking, you know, it's a good Bible when it's got a zipper noise to open it up. Yeah. That's well, it's full good. of notes because she was a theology uh, major at a christian college so i want to i just wanted to get this one little bit here uh yeah please oh my okay there are way too many pages to this book <laughs> the book being the bible <laughs> yeah I was gonna, that is a common common complaint i've heard with the bible it's a little it's a little wordy a little hefty. go to page 847 i was like there's over a thousand pages to this thing <laughs> okay so here's the description this is from a i think uh published in 2001 bible mm-hmm. which is uh ezekiel begins with a description so unearthly that some have suggested suggested the prophet saw a UFO. Indeed, there are similarities, glowing lights, quick movements, inhuman figures shrouded with fire, but at least one critical difference sets Ezekiel's story apart. UFOs typically appear in remote places and then mysteriously zoom off, never to be heard from again. The majestic being Ezekiel described was not rushing off to disappear. He wanted to be known by everyone. So even we're even starting, like even the Bible people are talking about how Ezekiel sounds like a close encounter of the third kind. That's so interesting. Cause I was definitely raised very Christian, very religious. And this is the first that I'm hearing of this. So maybe I just went to the wrong churches. This sounds cooler than what I was taught. For I, sure. Yeah. I was trying to do a lot of the research I ended up doing for this. I had to, 
read around or interpret my way around a lot of writings that are like, this is very obviously not a UFO because it's very <laughs> obviously angels. And um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's that's the main irony, really. Like, you know, so much of, I mean, modern Christianity in particular, you want to believe in the supernatural. You want to believe in a very active mm. demonological world of demons and angels. And to make a UFO argument kind of like de-supernaturalizes it. So, mm-hmm. like, I, I can see that the, there's like an incentive within Christian circles to be like, no, this was angels because we want to believe in mm. the supernatural. This is not UFOs, which are fake. This is about angels, which are real. Exactly. <laughs> hi, everybody. <laughs> yeah, on that note, hi, welcome to uh, It's Probably Not Aliens, a podcast about trying to learn learn and debunk, or maybe not, maybe not even debunk, just kind of figure out the the main sort of uh, theories behind ancient astronaut theories and learn a little bit about history. We'll come up with a catchier tagline later. We're digging through ancient aliens until we find the one that is the alien. Um, That's right. And today we are joined all the way from Cairo, um, oddly enough, um, Seti the First, legendary <laughs> pharaoh, lived for 80 years. No, no, no. Today we've got a wonderful friend of mine who uh, started on YouTube around the same time I did. And has had this wonderful, successful YouTube channel called Religion for Breakfast and is a expert on the, the secular study of religion. You're a religious studies PhD. Uh, welcome, Andrew Mark Henry, Dr. Andrew Mark Henry. Yeah, thank you. Recently doctorified after long uh, years of wandering the desert of trying to get the PhD. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm Andrew Henry. I study uh, late Roman religion, early Christianity, focusing specifically on demons and magic. So the rituals that people would do to try not to die from typhus or demons. So amulets and cursed tablets, stuff like that. So I say I study the 99% of the Roman Empire because you might study the 1% with Cicero and Julius Caesar, but everybody else was buying amulets to try not to die from sickness or demons. Uh, so I don't specifically study the Hebrew Bible, but you know, I'm swimming in the waters of biblical studies as a scholar of early Christianity. Yeah, I decided to get you because you were the only person I knew who would even know. I mean, I'm coming from a position where my, since we're talking about Christianity and religion today, I have to like lay all my cards on the table. I wasn't raised Christian mm-hmm. uh, and I have literally never been to church um, except for like weddings or funerals or something. So I, this is all like completely alien stuff to me. <laughs> so when I, you know, cracked it open and uh, started looking at Ezekiel and I was like, oh man, there's a lot of words here. Anyways, today we're talking about the book of Ezekiel. Uh, I don't know if that's been, been formally stated, Yeah, but um, the claim... Oh, and also I'm Tristan. We're great at podcasting. Yeah, I'm Scott Nicewander. How's it going, everyone? You've listened to this podcast a couple episodes at this point, I imagine. Yeah, so uh, Tristan, you'd mentioned not really going to uh, to church very often growing up at, or at all. Um, but as, as I believe you had said before we started recording, we are recording on a Sunday morning and we're talking about the Bible. So this is your church right now. It's very this pious. is it. Mm-hmm. Just like how the first time I ever did a tutorial in university was as a TA, the first time I've ever went to church, I'm the pastor, so it all works. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's let's talk about let's talk about Ezekiel. Let's talk about how it relates to aliens. Tristan, lead us into it. Alrighty, so this shows up several times in Ancient Aliens, uh, uh, in the pilot, but also in two subsequent episodes and later seasons. This is the part where it's going to be difficult to just cover this episode by episode because 
their claims get broken up and revisited over and over again over the series. But uh, this is the main argument that comes from Eric Von Daniken, a name that shows up over and over again on this show. Sure does. He points out in the pilot that there's this possibility that if you were to look at is the book of Ezekiel, which is a probably one of the weirder of the uh, you know Hebrew Bible prophets has a vision in uh, Merkaba. Apologize to anybody for if the pronunciation is terrible on that one. But the description that he has is of God arriving on a chariot or not a chariot, a massive throne being carried by strange alien four-faced creatures called cherubim. Where he says the very common thing that shows up in the Old Testament, which is yo, you guys are doing everything bad and bad stuff's gonna happen. Because because you guys aren't doing Christian or you guys can't aren't doing Judaism correctly. So, but in Eric von Daniken world, in ancient alien world, this was not a supernatural prophecy, but a actual visit from a flying saucer. Yeah. Very, very interesting. So yeah, I think I latched onto this really early on when we were trying to think of topics to do, because there's a lot of uh, stuff that they link from the Bible to be aliens. Uh, This is a a very... Uh, like you said, this one shows up a lot. This this sort of chariot that is just supposed to be some sort of alien spacecraft and a, a visitor. And uh, I found it really interesting. There's a lot of other stuff too, like the idea that the Ark of the Covenant is supposed to be some sort of miniature nuclear reactor, which is also very interesting. But this one is for sure the most repeated. It's been in a couple episodes of Ancient Aliens, and it is just really interesting how these uh, how the ancient astronaut theorists can pick and choose certain things that they think are you know like this this is god over here but this is aliens over here and it's this one specifically they seem to be very unwavering about this is this is aliens a hundred percent yeah we did talk about in the last episode that there's this strange confluence that it, of the ancient aliens people where there's this biblical literalism mixed with trying to find you know, alien uh, extraterrestrial answers to describe things that they see in religious contexts, mm-hmm. which is this strange attempt to like make it very scientific, but also comes from a place of like some very strange religious fundamentalism. And it's a, it's confusing. Yeah. There's actually um, like a, a style of or a methodology of studying religion that's called medical materialism. It's considered somewhat of a fallacy. Uh, it's like hunting for medical ex- explanations for religious experience. So these are the people that say, oh, Muhammad must have had some sort of you know dehydration triggered vision. And that's where the Quran came from. Or Jesus must have swooned mm. and actually passed out. And that was how he came back to life. So that's like a whole category of methodology where you're trying to find like scientific explanations to religious experience. Then you have kind of like the, the geological <laughs> explanations like the Red Sea was really just this big wind that pushed aside some some water. And I actually see the ancient aliens as kind of like a subset of these of these explanations where you're trying to you, you bring in some sort of materialistic explanation to something that's presented as supernatural and ineffable. 
Uh, that's not to say that like, you know, medical materialism or geological or, you know, astronomical explanations are never correct, but I'm always, you know, I, I say that ancient history and archaeology is also uh, empirical fields. And so I want to see empirical evidence to back up the claim. And unless we have some sort of, you know, another common example would be a, like drug-induced visions. The book Revelation was induced by psychedelic drugs. I'm like, well, unless we discover some sort of, you know, skeleton of a priest with residue and analysis of marijuana on him or something like that mm-hmm. or magic mushrooms i'm i'm gonna just say it's speculative so i, I just think it's kind of ironic that this is a, a take, taking these things pre- presented as supernatural you know angelic beings and chariot-like things and uh offering a materialistic explanation i, I think in some respects it diminishes the imag- imagination of a human to sit down and write something like this like maybe ezekiel is just a really imaginative guy and he and he wrote this you know uh so that's that's one ironic thing that comes to mind yeah, yeah to take um to add to that um a lot of the writing that led to ancient alien theorists like a lot of like what ancient aliens uh is based on are a lot of books that came out in the late 1960s and early 1970s which was sort of like in the zeitgeist of uh the white world i guess is the way to call it at this point the western world mm-hmm. there was this big movement of not only like rampant cultural appropriation but there was like this big spiritualist movement trying to interface with new ways of understanding the universe, uh, new ways of understanding spiritual things that did not rely on like sort of the traditional understanding of things. And this is where you get a lot of like weird cults and mm. a lot of strange new age like it's uh, the big overarching thing would be like new age type stuff and this definitely fits into that so uh onto the book of ezekiel though um so this yeah, is like talk about it yeah so the prophet ezekiel did as i wrote uh saw some super weird shit in the bible <laughs> if you were to exp- uh, look at the um description mm-hmm. there's uh, a great cloud with a raging fire engulfing itself mm-hmm. four living creatures that came from within the cloud uh, a wheel beside each living creature and that the rims of the wheels are filled with eyes. <sighs> Terrifying. And that these are called cherubim. And then I was like, wait, okay, two things come to mind. And this, this actually goes into some stuff about Roman things too. When I think of cherub, I think of like cute little cupidy things. But then you Google biblically accurate angels and you find <laughs> a sphere with eyes and things like that. So that's yeah, apparently that was... what this is about. The Religion for Breakfast Discord server has actually custom made biblically accurate angel emojis. And they're <laughs> they're terrifying as they sound. Yeah, that's that's something that always stuck with me from, you know, growing up in, in church and, and reading the Bible was every time an angel would appear their first thing would be like don't be afraid because they are terrifying they are like the descriptions of them are uh, just so unsettling i think this is a good word for it yeah the first thing that comes to mind though isn't okay maybe i'm getting my like symbols confused this is why i think andrew might actually have something to say when i think of cherubim my mind goes to like uh sort of the adoption of the symbols of like venus's daughter or Venus's son, who I think is called Cupid. Mm. And that sort of symbology going into like, cause a lot of like Roman uh, symbols, especially like of their gods and figures were sort of uh, syncretized into Christianity when it became Romanized. Right. And 
the cherubim, like, I don't know, for some reason, cherubs makes me think of like Cupid and like cute little children flying around angel things. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know the exact history of that, that imagery of like the naked baby with wings, uh, mm-hmm. but there's definitely like, you know, angels kind of take on this imagery of being more humanoid w- with wings. I, I sometimes think that might be drawn from the winged victory, you know, the goddess victory in the Roman religion, which who is depicted with big feathered wings. You know, the what I guess we, we could call like angelology but like the development of angel, angel theology throughout post-exile uh, Judaism really kind of develops in, in those few hundred years, like the book of Enoch, where there's there's these angels called the watchers that, that fall from heaven and then kind of lead humanity astray, teaching humans how to do magic and cosmetics. Ironic, ironically enough, it's counted as evil as magic in the book of Enoch. But these angels are like very different from the angelic creatures described in Ezekiel. Uh, but these these texts are separated by a few hundred years. You know, Ezekiel dates to the sixth century. Uh, so it's Ezekiel himself is in exile in Babylon. And then in 586 or 587, the Babylonian empire captures Jerusalem and carries off the elite uh, of the kingdom of Judah into exile. So there's kind of, it's like already we're seeing like this, this is a book that's in some respects written in the context of trauma <laughs> you know Ezekiel's in 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 this exiled land uh writing this and he and a lot of it is basically him warning about Jerusalem falling to the, the Babylonians because they're not following Yahweh uh so I don't know what that necessarily has to do with the angels but like if mm-hmm. I always try to want to read the text through the context and the, the context might be the trauma of watching your kingdom get decimated yeah fair the Descriptions I have found of the book of Ezekiel describe this as essentially God trying to literally put the fear and awesomeness of Yahweh back into the Jewish people at the time. Mm -hmm. And that Ezekiel is a prophet that comes after a series of prophets that foretell doom to Jerusalem, but were not listened to, which I think like speaks to like, yeah, seeing your kingdom decimated and then having like mm-hmm. several prophets before saying, Hey, if we don't do something, our kingdom's going to fall. And then the kingdom falls, that kind of a thing. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it kind of moralizes history. I mean, a lot of the Hebrew Bible is written in, in retrospective of the, of the kingdom of Judah already having been destroyed. And so the, the big chunk of the Hebrew Bible is called the Deuteronomistic history. It stretches from the book of judges all the way up through second Kings. So basically the whole story of King David, King Solomon, uh, all the kings of Judah and Israel uh, leading up to the fall to Babylon is kind of written and compiled after the fall to Babylon. So I, I see a lot of it as kind of a national narrative where they kind of create this, this narrative of being, you know, being led astray by foreign gods and falling away from the worship of Yahweh centered in Jerusalem. Uh, when, if you look at like the archaeological, archaeological evidence for much, much of this history, like most of the Israelites were not, you know, they were, they had cultic sites outside of Jerusalem. Many of them were worshiping other gods like Asherah, who's a Canaanite god. Uh, so Ezekiel himself, he seems to speak as a priest. A lot of his language is very priestly. And especially in the latter latter half of the book, he's like super concerned about rebuilding a new temple in Jerusalem and rededicating the kingdom to to following Yahweh's uh, laws. Uh, so his, his, you know, as much as a visionary as he was, he apparently also was like this priestly figure. Hmm. Yeah, the descriptions are big dramatic Mm -hmm. again it's all like he is he is the prototype of the fire and brimstone preacher god comes in yeah unhuman creatures show up on fire you know as big as you could possibly make it yeah it it gets your attention for sure Mm -hmm. yeah and so 
They appear in Babylon, the last place one might expect to see God in an age where the norm was that gods looked over specific tribes. That's sort of the norm of the period. Like the, like as you mentioned about how Yahweh was like centered around Jerusalem. So having Yahweh show up in Babylon is that like, it could be an early symbol that trying to establish uh, Yahweh as the God of everything, not just like the God of this one city, be a a break from that, Mm -hmm. which is a turning point uh, for monotheism. In a lot of ways, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean that. I mean, in some respects, the turn to uh, what what's actually it's sometimes called monolatry instead of monotheism. Uh, ancient Israelite religion was monolatrous, meaning that they worshipped one god, but they believed in other gods. Like it was a very busy pantheon, but only Yahweh is mm. worthy of worship. Uh, and that turn toward monolatry was relatively late. So some scholars say that King Josiah of the Kingdom of Judah, who lived a few decades before Ezekiel was kind of like the first one to implement a huge religious reform saying, Hey, stop worshiping Yahweh outside of Jerusalem. You only can worship him in Jerusalem. But, you know, Ezekiel's vision seeing Yahweh in Babylon. Yeah. It's far from his home, (laughs) at least according to the Judahite elite uh, that he should be living in in Jerusalem. Uh, And you can think this book being compiled after that house, you know, the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem being destroyed. That's uh, interesting in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Because it must be hard if, if religion, if uh, gods are so local in the kind of uh, religious understanding of the time, then being a people in exile, it would be hard to like, how do you, how do you reinterpret your faith to have that make sense? Like if you aren't in the place where the God is, turning them into the universal God might be the way to do as such. And then we get to what prophets do, which is have prophecies. And mm. when God shows up on his throne, carried by these cherubim, they predict that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and that there's going to be a downfall of all of Israel's neighbors, but that after that big destruction, that there's mm-hmm. going to be a great future for Jerusalem after that. And that's sort of the big thing. Like if we get our, if we get our shit together, there's going to be some pretty bad days ahead, but after that, it's going to be great. That, and that's interesting to me, especially what, you know, in the context of what you had said, Andrew, about how a lot of this was written after the fact, right? So it almost feels like putting, like trying to make sense of, of, the history that had that had already happened. I never knew that. Like growing up in church, for some reason, I always had this thought in my head that the Bible was written almost like a daily diary. Like someone was like, and here's what happened today. But like finding out that uh, that a lot of this was was kind of written and collected after all of these events happened and you're trying to make sense of it and tell a story and, and create a sense of identity is really interesting. I cannot believe that was not a thing that I was taught growing up. Yeah. I think it's sometimes because like the books of the Bible are na- are often named after a person. <laughs> so like, you know, the book of Samuel, but like first and second Samuel was, you know, written or compiled centuries after th- this figure would have been alive. Uh, so that that's a little bit of a misnomer. The book of Ezekiel, I, from my understanding, just from digging into some of the commentaries, there's kind of a debate over whether it was written just by one guy. And it seems like it may have been. Apparently Ezekiel, uh, was taken hostage to Babylon before Jerusalem even fell. So sometime in the 590s Mm. and his visions seem to continue into the 570s. So there's kind of like the span of him being this prophet 
before and after the fall. And I can imagine that like after watching the fall to Jerusalem, like his, his uh, cachet as a, as a prophet is, is up like, Oh, he saw this coming. Now let's listen to him. So I could, mm-hmm. I could see that being a factor here. Um, mm-hmm. But I guess like the imagery of, you know, crazy angelic beings and, and things in the sky. Like I, I, I just don't see the, like, I, I guess I trust the human imagination enough that somebody can claim to have a vision or sincerely believe that they had a vision without some sort of uh, really outlandish external uh, trigger for that vision, like a, like a UFO. Um, mm-hmm. I, I had a friend back in Boston who, who was an evangelical Christian. And he like w- told me one day, Hey, I had this, I experienced a demon last night. They came into my room and kind of menaced me. Mm-hmm. And he's like this highly educated professional in Boston. As far as I know, there's no, like, he's not like this wacky figure, but like he sincerely believed in the reality of demons and their their ability to walk into your room and kind of freak you out. And so like, wh- why would it be so surprising that a, a priestly elite member of the kingdom of Judah who like is deeply invested in the cult of Yahweh would have visions like this and then write them down? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for me, it's, it's you know, it's it doesn't need the, the alien explanation. And that friend was John Constantine. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I agree. It, it feels very, it, it feels, I mean, a lot of this happens with the ancient astronaut theorists who just take something and they they want to put they want to shove aliens into it. And I don't know. It, it's it's interesting to hear. You know, a lot of this podcast is about us kind of debunking a lot of those uh, alien theories and trying to uncover the the real history as as best as we can with the information that we have. It, it's always fascinating to hear why people have latched onto the the aliens ideas of it. And I'm sure we'll get to that soon enough, Tristan. Oh uh, yeah. So the big thing uh, to really get into to chew on is a 1974 book by the name of the spaceships of Ezekiel by uh, Joseph F. Bloomrick, mm-hmm. who was the chief of NASA's system. He was a NASA engineer and he essentially went through all the translations of the Bible, mm-hmm. according to him, trying to disprove that this was a ancient astronaut, that this was a UFO, but then came to the undeniable conclusion that this absolutely was a UFO. So now that's interesting to me because that, Im- that implies that people were definitely in belief that it was a UFO for like, you know, way before this, that it must have been a super popular theory even before, you know, 1974. While this is true, uh, mm-hmm. this is the first recording I hear of it. Although uh, Eric Von Daniken's book came out in 68, so there might be a little bit of a precedence to it. But yeah, fair enough. it also could be that like all people who get advanced degrees, that this guy's probably just a little strange and has peculiar interests. <laughs> and hey, uh, decided, <laughs> hey I, I, I'm talking about myself as well. But then after he concludes unequivocally that these cherubim were definitely aliens and that the throne of God is definitely a UFO, he then took his uh, considerable skills as an as a draftsman mm-hmm. to draw very elaborate descriptions of how this would look and what it looks like. And the fun side story that comes out of it is apparently he came up with a patent out of this where he developed an omnidirectional wheel for some very edge cases in engineering uh, from his design of trying to draw what this UFO definitely looked like. I do want to point out that you don't have to, a, a patent doesn't have to work for you to get a patent on it. So I don't know what the actual patent of this is, if it was like a working thing, or if it just sounds like him being like, yep, I've got an Omni wheel. 
Oh no, this guy's an engineer. This has actually been used. Okay, that's pretty cool. Very, very edge cases, but it is useful in certain contexts. I mean, I'm just, this is me policing disciplinary boundaries. And I sometimes hate it when academics do it, but I'm going to do it anyway. But like, he's a physicist, he's an engineer. That's, that's awesome. I respect that. But like, show me some, some expertise in ancient Hebrew. So show me some expertise in biblical archaeology and metaphysics and in, you know, late kingdom of Judah theology. And then, then I'll take your book more seriously. Uh, It just kind of annoys me. So just like how uh, Tristan, you said, guys with, advanced degrees and niche interests are sometimes kind of wacky. I also find people with advanced degrees tend to, sometimes can tend to be confidently speak outside of their own wheelhouse. And that just kind of annoys me a little bit. And this is coming from a super science fiction fan. Like I want aliens to, to exist. That'd be great. I want, I want the Galactic Federation to, to happen and be on the Enterprise D. Um, but, <laughs> you know, like it, it's just kind of, it's, it's, it's a stretch. <laughs> this guy is reaching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And then ancient aliens, when they picked it up, they made the argument that this was a, uh, that the book of Ezekiel talked about the enemies of Israel and that ancient writers just couldn't understand. They didn't have the vocabulary to describe advanced technology. So that, and then try to pump up that Bloomberg's really smart. He's a NASA engineer. So obviously he knows about the book. He knows about ancient uh, Judah. And he knows late, late biblical Hebrew well enough yep. to talk about his vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Um, if yeah, you're yep. work for NASA, you, do you think you can get somebody to the moon without knowledge of uh, about ancient Judah? No. So on the show, they interpret that when Ezekiel is saying angels, they mean celestial energy and that there's a fire involved. There's a, there's some like coal and fire that show up and that's obviously the exhaust of a spaceship. And that yeah, after months of research, Bloomerick came to the conclusion that Ezekiel described as I was was indeed a spacecraft. So that's, that's the way ancient aliens looks at it. And as we talked about, this several times ancient aliens will take some stuff that was kind of esoteric and written in the seventies. And then be like, this is definitely true. We're going to mischaracterize everything about it, but mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. that's really, that's infuriating. I mean, it does feel like, cause I will do that too with my own YouTube videos where I'll, I'll be like this def this like concept that I want to talk about definitely applies. Like all I know about is like comics and superheroes. So like, that's what I can speak about. But if I start getting into history or science, or art and culture, I'll be like, yep, I definitely know what I'm talking about because I read comic books, obviously. It it is very uh, kind of infuriating that this guy's like, yep, uh, I know spacecraft. This is spacecraft. Well, in chapter seven of Ezekiel, he does talk about the Terrigen gas, so it might actually work. That might do it. Yeah, they're all inhumans. Yeah, I guess I just would want to see a very in-depth study of every single Hebrew word that he's latching onto. And like, does he even mention the Hebrew? Like when he says, oh, I read every translation of the Bible. I'm like, great. Mm -hmm. But like, what matters is, did you read (laughs) the Hebrew manuscripts Mm -hmm. and then do a word study when he says, when Ezekiel says fire or when Ezekiel says eyes like what word did ezekiel use are there other semantic meanings for those words and if it's like something if like the second or third definition in the dictionary is something weird and interesting that you could latch on to sure uh but if he's i I have not read this guy's book and i probably won't but that's what i would say if anybody (laughs) is gonna go spend the time to do it that does even mention the hebrew uh he said he read all six translations wow six translation well i read the message translation and it did just say to go watch this episode of ancient aliens so I think that's pretty good. Uh, I read the version where they turned it into a comic um, for Sunday school oh, teachers. Like so there you go. 
Um, that translation, the comic translation, very good. So there's a couple, there's a lot of things to respond here and are good ways to chew into, which is first of all, um, the reference that what they say is that the experts say that the that a, the book of Ezekiel is talking about the enemies of Israel. And that's what we like to call it, uh, an unfact um, <laughs> or uh, uh, it, it is it is truth not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's <laughs> It's a common argument, and I guess like if, if you're going to take an educational thing, this is something called a straw man argument that happens quite often, which is when you're trying to make a case and you want to misrepresent the people who you are arguing against, you give them a weak or indefensible position for you to then destroy with facts and logic. And because people are you know, disinclined to check your sources and such, very often they will be like, no, this is what this side thinks, and therefore we can tear it apart. And a lot of times this happens in ancient aliens where they will say like, oh yeah, they just dismissed it as swamp gas. And therefore like, isn't that silly? So that's fun. They can't pull, they can't pull a Scooby-Doo return to zombie Island on us. That's my Scooby-Doo reference of the episode. You're welcome. So I'm, I'm not a Hebrew Bible scholar, but if I had to design a research project around what does this vision mean? What does the Merkavah vision and the first few chapters of Ezekiel mean? Like step one would be to try to ex- establish the cultural context. When he's, he mentions wheels, is there any symbolic significance to that in ancient Near Eastern religion? When he mentions cherubim and seraphim, like is are there analogs in nearby cultures? Like you immediately establish the cult, the, the context. And then step two would be to kind of establish the language. You know, what what sort of Hebrew is, is Ezekiel using? Like I said earlier, what, what semantic range are the words? Like, why does he decide to use this word instead of that word? So there's like a, a whole process of like laying the groundwork before you even do yeah. the study. And I think that would, that would yield so much more data. I, I'm sure, I mean, I find this vision fascinating. I think Ezekiel was probably a very interesting guy. So I'm not like diminishing the, the spectacular spectacular literary value of this this uh, this vision but i think without that sort of groundwork you're kind of doing a huge disservice to this cool piece of literature by just kind of latching onto things and spinning off uh, unfounded theories even like some simple stuff like to say like to hinge your argument on people of the time wouldn't have had the vocabulary to describe like things like a UFO when like could have said silver disc window. I saw a being that was gray with big eyes, you know, like you could have yeah said yeah, those kinds of a things. Good point. And also uh, if there's one thing you can find by reading this book is that Ezekiel would have said those things because it's extraordinarily detail oriented. Like he does not leave a whole lot to the imagination. And in some cases, like, one of the descriptions that leads to the sort of biblical angel of, uh, or the biblically accurate angel of the cherubim of wheels within wheels. He's talking about a wheel because wheels have spokes and stuff inside of them. Mm-hmm. And it's just the fact that he was so excruciatingly detailed so that you didn't have one thing left to the imagination is how we ended up with this. Mm. And Ezekiel's full of exhaustive, like the description of the cherubim is an entire chapter. So yeah, like, like I said, he's a super uh, imaginative guy, like being, you know, describing angelic beings. Like he, he's yeah. not the first or the last scholar, not scholar, uh, you know, prophet in this, this mm-hmm. religious tradition to describe angelic beings in, in, in minute detail. I, again, I'll re- reference people to the book of Enoch, which is just like entire lists of what each angel you know, presides over, you know, like speculation about angels is kind of a thing in in Jewish literature. So, uh, you know, 
Ezekiel might be one of the first ones to do it, but even even a hundred years before him, uh, the prophet Isaiah sees the throne room of God, and there are angelic beings there singing "Holy, Holy, Holy." So it's not not even like when I talk about cultural context, like Ezekiel is not inventing angelic visions from whole cloth. Here, he's he stands in a lineage with you know Isaiah being the his predecessor. The other thing that happens is that what Ezekiel is describing is the throne of God. And it's not the only time that the throne of God shows up in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Now, how many times this is based off Ezekiel? The best example I came across was in Revelation, which is obviously way later. But then also there is uh, Isaiah and Daniel. Because like, yeah, uh, in Daniel, the throne of God is described as having wheels. In Isaiah, there's a, another example where Isaiah appears before God's throne and mm. there are seraphim and divine beings there so he's like drawing upon images that are that exist in this um sort of cultural milieu or at least evidence towards that yeah i mean uh isaiah like i mentioned is is kind of the famous example i, I think it's isaiah 6 uh, isaiah 6 3 I, I believe is when the famous quote holy 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 his lord god almighty is mentioned and the, mm-hmm. the angels are described as constantly singing this i think they're seraphim the seraphim are constantly singing this and and yeah i mean Revelation is way later, you know, it's also called the Apocalypse of John, you know, it dates to first century CE, uh, but, you know, thoroughly Jewish text, even though it ends up in the Christian New Testament, uh, which has angelic speculation and, and angelic visions. You have the um, ascension of Isaiah, which is also a late antique description of Isaiah being caught up into the heavens and seeing all the different heavenly realms so like, you know, this is what mysticism is. It's kind of the, it's the whole process of, of trying to connect with the divine visions about the divine and the literature describing it. So, you know, Ezekiel is participating in this larger enterprise of mysticism and not so much, you know, rote description of, of seeing something that, that floated up to him one day. Like he describes in one, I think later on in the book, he describes like falling flat on his face as a vision strikes him. So it's not even like, he, he's not writing ethnographically. Like I was sitting there. It's like no, like God, you know, came upon me and I fell down. So it, I would almost respect more a a study on like you know the, the psychedelic drugs sort of research. At least that's that's dealing with the human mind as opposed to speculating about visit visitation by aliens. Yeah, and also it's not like these things happen in a vacuum. Like there's other cases in the Bible, but also there's contemporaneous art that also shows depictions of God's throne and cherubim that have four faces and there's wheels and those kinds of things. Like he's not, he's not drawing this up whole cloth. There is like contemporaneous symbols of these kinds of things existing as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My hunch is that if, if there is, I'm actually not sure about that. If there is art, it would be like Babylonian or something. I, I can't think of any just depictions from the sixth century BC, that would be Judahite, but some of the more uh, fantastic depictions of his vision are often Christian from later centuries. But, you know, I, I, I often describe religion as a biocultural phenomenon. Like there is like a biological aspect of religion. There's there's all sorts of really interesting cognitive anthropologists that try to locate, you know, the religion part of the human brain. We tend to have evolved to, to view objects as as having agency, like a, that that idol over there, you know, that object over there is a, is a god or this this tree over here is a sacred tree. So like we've, we've evolved a, a cognitive bias to do that, but it's also a cultural phenomenon, the so-called social construct cliche that's thrown around, thrown around so many times. Uh, and one of the more convincing studies I've seen actually focus on near-death experiences, that when people have near-death experiences, they experience them through the cultural imagery that they know. Oh, so if a Hindu has a near-death experience, they see the Hindu gods. If they're a Christian, 
Christian have a near death experience, they experience the, the Christian God or Jesus. So in my mind, like the, the bio and the cultural are enmeshed. So that's why I say when we when we study Ezekiel's vision, I would love to see a study that looks at the culture first and then maybe <laughs> make mm-hmm. a very speculative argument yeah. about what what serotonin levels were going through his brain. You know, like that it would be extremely speculative, but at least you've grounded it in in the cultural because he's he's living in a cultural moment. The kingdom of Judah has just been destroyed by Babylon and the elite have been carried off into, into Babylon. And we actually have um we have like archaeological evidence of this community. There's called, what are called the Al-Yahudu tablets, which are tablets of Judahites lit that were written written by Judahites living in exile in Mesopotamia. They've kind of created their own community in exile. They're paying their taxes to the Babylonians. They're they're serving in the Babylonian economy. Uh, so they're they're kind of creating this new you know settlement in exile. And Ezekiel apparently was a big was a big factor in that exile community. So it's the it's the the immediate jump to the external as opposed to the, trying to establish the cultural facts on the ground is what bothers me about this. Yeah, I'm about to say you're asking quite a bit for ancient aliens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, that's what I said. Like, I, I don't know enough about this field because I don't do Hebrew Bible. But if I were to, to establish this study, if I had to write the book on this, that's what I would do. You know, it's, I've I've laid that out. <laughs> well, we can also talk about people who have replied to Yosef. Bloomerick. His book came out in the 70s, but there have been people who are interested in replying to his uh, claims. Yeah. Some reply guys. I like it. Yeah. Uh, So uh, Ronald Story, who uh, is basically the 19, was the 1970s, 1980s version of a YouTuber who does drama content, but replying to the (laughs) UFO movement. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 And was also a consultant on ancient aliens, but not one they seem to listen to. That has, yeah, that that has been, we've talked about this before. It was very interesting to see early episodes of ancient aliens had dissenting voices of of experts that were like, well, it's probably not aliens. And then as the show goes on, they're like, we're we're not going to bring those people back anymore. No, thank you. Uh, So in a book called, called Guardians of the Universe, question mark. Here's some just choice quotes about uh, an analysis of Bloomerick's books. One, Bloomerick doctors up his biblical quotes just a smidgen to make them conform a little better to his spaceship interpretation. Mm, Seems like that's a no-no. The spaceships of Ezekiel, in all honesty, can only be described as an extreme form of rationalization with a good supply of technical jargon, charts, and diagrams carefully designed to impress the general reader. The book does contain a good collection of impressive drawings, which prove nothing more than that whoever prepared them is a very good draftsman. (laughs) (laughs) It's got good drawings in it. That's something. And we saw that in the episode we did earlier on the Bermanas, that the fake Veda that was made in like the either 1918 or 1950 that has all of the technical drawings of these flying machines, mm-hmm. then because it's like lumped in with the Vedas by these people, right? Uh, then like they'll sh- they'll show this book from the fifties and be like, look, thousands of years ago they interpreted this, and it's like <laughs> no. Okay. But uh, having those kinds of drawings can be very effective to a general audience that, and this is the hard part about doing public education as all of us are public educators, is that if you don't make the connections explicit, you can put two things beside each other and there's going to be an implied connection that Mm -hmm. can lead people astray. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then some documentaries do that intentionally in order to sell commercials on History Channel. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this goes back to the the expertise thing, too. Like, he's he's a skilled draftsman. He's a skilled engineer and physicist. I'm actually not sure how skilled he is, but that's what, you know, his credentials are. But, like, those are not necessarily the tools you need to bring to bear on an ancient text from the 6th century BC, you know? Mm. If he's an engineer of ancient ancient technology sure like show me how a catapult worked like i love those youtube channels that try to recreate ancient ancient technology uh, and some ancient technology is like incredibly impressive but you know i i would i'm more convinced by your your argument tristan about you know the late biblical hebrew was capacious enough to describe an ancient alien encounter you know ezekiel could have described that had he wanted to but instead he's describing a vision from yahweh which makes a lot of sense culturally for Mm -hmm. a priest of yahweh living in exile a second replier by a guy named jerome clark who is a journalist who has a very strong beat on or who at least had a very strong beat on studying ufo people and also is a country slash folk singer whoa love that detail (laughs) good combo awesome good combo of things uh yeah when i looked up jerome clark i was like okay Writer on UFOs, interesting. And then I decided to go like, all right, what's his Wikipedia article say about uh, his other things? And he's also a country and focusing. I'm like, oh, oh, nice Renaissance man. Exactly. Claim that uh, Bloomerick offered quote a creative but misplaced effort to translate the metaphorical biblical account into a properly engineered spacecraft. It's it, it sounds. I mean, it, it's a thing that we've encountered before, where ancient astronaut theorists will take stuff from the modern world, uh, technology from the modern world. And they will say, well, look at how it must've been like this. Look at how, you know, these things were designed and described exactly like our modern technologies. Then it, so it must be that they had some sort of, you know, help from a more advanced species to make something that, you know, we can recognize in our modern society. And yeah, it's just, it's just like looking at the lens through a lot of like modern kind of bias and it's, yeah. Yeah. We've, we've mentioned the book of revelation and this is very common in evangelical circles trying to make, Make sense of the prophecies in the book of Revelation. It says like a swarm of locusts will consume the earth. And people will say, well, those locusts are obviously Apache helicopters. Mm. You know, they buzz like locusts. They look kind of insectoid from a distance. This <laughs> definitely is referencing an apocalyptic battle here in the 20th century. At least this was, you know, most of the speculation is happening in the late 1990s because of the left behind books. And, you know, those, those interpretations are coming from a cultural frame of reference from somebody that knows what an Apache helicopter is. So it's kind of ironic, the same reason that they're saying, oh, well, you know, the Apostle John didn't didn't know how to describe Apache helicopter. So he tried his best. But it's like you yourself are getting that idea because of your cultural frame of reference. Yep. And Apache helicopters were almost certainly the last thing on John's mind when writing the book of revelation. Yeah. And again, and it, I think it kind of diminishes his own skill and, and, and expertise as a mystic, yeah. you know, like let, let him be imaginative enough to, to talk about locusts consuming the earth, you know, yeah. and itself, this will come up in a lot of other things too. Like um, one of the things that happens a lot is like, they'll take an, an object that was created like a thousand years ago. And then they'll say, this looks a lot like this modern thing that we know of. And it's like, that's because back then they wouldn't have made it look like this if they know what an airplane looked like. For example, like this wooden bird in Egypt that you claim is an airplane, they would they wouldn't have made it look this way if they had known that oh no, it looks too much like an airplane. But they didn't have the frame of reference; they didn't know what an airplane looked like, so they just drew a bird. And later, people after the invention of the airplane interpreted it as oh, it must be an airplane, airplane shaped. Yeah, yeah. Uh, especially I when mean, you add the extra piece to it. <laughs> 
Yeah. So here, here's a free uh, dissertation project for any grad student that might be in the audience. Like go do a word study for when the first time Apache helicopter is floated as an American evangelical explanation for the book of Revelation. See if it's correlated to Desert Storm in the early 90s, you know, when the U.S. is fighting in Iraq and Kuwait. Like I bet you you could find the cultural moment where this entered the cultural zeitgeist in, mm-hmm. in Christian literature. So like that's what I would, again, going back to how if, if I were a scholar of late 20th century American evangelical that would be a really cool peer-reviewed article to write. And that's how I would how I would start. You know, do a word study, you know, Google search of everything written in, in the early 90s and see where who the first person is to float the Apache helicopter idea. And it's almost certainly explainable because of what's on the media, you know, on the news, <laughs> evening news in the early 90s. And it's probably yeah. a lot of imagery of the Apache helicopter. I mean, they were being egged on because if I remember correctly, um, Saddam Hussein, in order to encourage more tourism to Iraq, was considering rebuilding the Temple of Babylon or something like that. And it's like, oh, yeah, you're just you're just you're just encouraging trouble or this kind of these kind of uh, people. Um, yeah. And another thing that happens, and this happens a lot, is I think in a lot of ways this is very obviously like working backwards from a conclusion. Yes. And so they're just looking for anything to build the connections with. And also when you're talking about the culture reference, it's like ancient aliens' cousin on History Channel was Nostradamus. Uh, interpretations, which is also yes. uh, a similar type of work. Like they'll take things like there's no description in Ezekiel of Yahweh's throne being described as silvery or round, but they just assume that that is a thing and put it into the text, thinking that people won't go and read Ezekiel to put it together. Or they'll say that like uh, it's described as having bovine legs and they'll be like, well, that's just obviously the landing struts of a UFO. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, I don't know what a UFO's landing struts look like, but I don't imagine that they look like cow legs, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> but also like what what would Ezekiel know a lot about in a pre-industrial agrarian society? He would know a lot about bovine, you know, like that's again. The- <laughs> <laughs> and then also... They'll or they'll like take things that are very specific and make them vague. Like Ezekiel writes about angels, and so ancient aliens was like, Well, what if angel means celestial energy? And it's like, Well, I guess then if we want to, if 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 thing in sky can mean UFO, then sure, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what's celestial energy if not just another a synonym for angel? You know, mm-hmm. what is celestial energy but angel persisting? Yeah, god. <laughs> That's going to be really timely. It's not even timely now. <laughs> my, 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 I would say my root critique of the ancient alien genre. And again, this is coming from a huge science fiction nerd who wants aliens to exist. I actually think aliens probably do exist if the whole Drake equation is, you know, like the whole, you know, yeah. where are the aliens? If there are so many stars, we would have seen civilizations already. Like I, I, that's like really cool stuff. And and channels like PBS Space Time have covered this in, in detail. Um, but I think that the crux of it is just not giving ancient people their due. Yeah. Ancient people, like kind of diminishing the ingenuity of ancient people who are like living and thriving in much harder situations than we are today. Uh, Their technology is incredible given the, given the situation of not having invented electricity yet. And so this is just kind of a a different angle instead of not, you know, the whole, you know, aliens built the pyramids. I'm like, well, just let's, let's just assume that ancient people were ingenious enough to build them. Yeah. Let's just assume the ancient people were imaginative enough to create 
weird wheeled multi-eyed angel beings you know like yeah we're we're not giving them their due yeah i mean you've hit exactly on what the whole message of this podcast is about you know like the reason this show is called it's probably not aliens is because we didn't want to definitively say that there are no aliens out there it would be cool if there were and there might be but at the same time you know looking at all of these ancient astronaut theories and saying that oh all of these ancient cultures who made these cool things who who wrote these cool things that it must have just been aliens it definitely wasn't them and their society and their people it was outside visitors it's very insulting i think and so hopefully that's that's what this this whole show is supposed to be about is trying to trying to give more of those ancient civilizations their due and you know combat this idea that it was outside visitors but at the same time like i don't know there could still be aliens out there it's probably not aliens but yeah we dedicated our first two episodes to the fermi paradox so i mean the door is always open and i'm happy to be surprised if the opportunity comes Mm -hmm. around i was excited when people started interpreting umuamua the extra solar asteroid that came through as possibly Mm -hmm. being an alien probe I'm excited. I'm always excited when these things happen because yeah, I want, I want, I want to believe, <laughs> but, um, but, yeah. but also I'm not going to do that at the expense of like taking ancient civilizations and undermining the amazing things. Because here's the thing that uh, really comes out when you have to explain history to people is that people several thousand years ago were just as smart as they are today. They just, mm-hmm. you know, they lacked the institutional things built up on top of each other, but like, you know, 10,000 years ago, like I would die if I was just teleported 10,000 years ago and I had to just be like, make do. I don't know how to start a fire from scratch. Mm-hmm, I don't know yeah. how to hunt a like megafauna, like like those <laughs> kinds of things. Like they were very skilled and very intelligent people. They just had a different context. I mean, that's the crux of the cognitive anthropology that I mentioned earlier. It's the assumption that we're working with the same brain matter that our ancestors were with 100,000 years ago. And so we kind of have those mental, you know, the, the the mental evolution from that time period where there's one theory called the hyperad- hyperactive agency detection device or HADD. Had so had means we evolved to be hyperactive and hyper aware of of agency everywhere around us. So if you hear a crack in the woods, you're like, oh my gosh, that's definitely a saber toothed tiger. It's gonna try to eat me. Because if we had not evolved that hyperactive awareness to see agency everywhere, we would have been eaten and killed. So it kind of select natural selection kind of gave that to our brains. And some scholars have put forward that as the the basis a cognitive bias for religion. Like, oh, well, something, I heard something in the woods and it was a fairy or a demon or an angel. Mm. Uh, and that's why I call religion a biocultural phenomenon because there does seem to be a cognitive bias like baked into our ne- neurology. Uh, so I don't necessarily want to discount biological explanations for visions or, or you know, the cultural, the collective experience of like chanting or doing rituals and in, in concert. You know, there's definitely a psychological aspect to that, but let's not jettison the, the cultural when trying to offer scientific explanations like uh, extraterrestrial vi- visitors. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the perfect way to, uh, that's the perfect period to put at the end of the story there. First of all, uh, before we, we shuffle off uh, this uh, episode, put one more in the can. Andrew, can you please plug all of the things that you want people to watch? Where can people find you? Yeah, my YouTube channel is Religion for Breakfast. It's one of the larger religious studies YouTube channels. So I'm dedicated to the academic study religion, uh, which means we study the human aspect of religion. We're not necessarily examining universal claims to 
the existence of God or theology. That's a that's a different field as far as I'm concerned. This is more anthropological, more sociological. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at Andrew Mark Henry. But yeah, hope to see you there. My mom, very big fan of religion for breakfast. Right. <laughs> She's really into biblical era Israel and stuff like that. Like that's just like her area of interest. And so she tells me how much she like really likes religion for breakfast. I'm like, well, what about st- st- step back? Step- no, okay. Okay. <laughs> no, uh, not my own stuff. That's fine. <laughs> if you want to check out our show, uh, we have it's probs not aliens on yeah on, on Twitter and Twitter. Instagram. Uh, if you want to go there, as of right now, we've not posted anything, but you know, stay tuned. I suppose, uh, Tristan, where can people find find you and your stuff? You'd mentioned your mom not watching your stuff. Where where can others watch it? <laughs> <laughs> she watches my stuff. She watches my stuff. Sometimes my mom will call me to tell me that she liked my video very much, or that she didn't like something that was in the video. So, I, just I, she just really really likes like she for her fortieth birthday did a dual trip of Egypt and Israel. So she like really is into uh, Andrew's work. But um, I run Step Back. It's a history channel. And I talk about uh, things uh, that's informed by me being a trained historian and Americanist. Since I'm, I don't talk about it very much, but I'm equally a historian and an American studies person. Yeah. Uh, and you can find me on YouTube. My YouTube channel is called NerdSync, N-E-R-D-S-Y-N-C. I almost forgot how to spell it. Uh, I talk about uh, comics and superheroes and cartoons, uh, so not nearly as educational, but I try to add some education in there by by infusing some history and culture and art and, and things, you know, learning about the real world through fictional characters. And you, as always, please give us your four-star reviews on iTunes. We don't want five stars. We want to be the most four star reviewed podcast on the platform uh wherever you're listening to us uh would really appreciate it and tell your friends tell your friends about this podcast because we're having a lot of fun making it hope you're having a lot of fun uh listening to it so help us out would appreciate it thank you thank you again andrew so much for being here i think you added a ton of interesting context and uh, analysis behind ezekiel that we would not have been able to do without you here so thank you so much yeah thanks for inviting me it was fun yeah we'll see you next time uh, for another episode of It's Probably Not Aliens, uh, remember, the truth might be out there. Uh.